Building relationships with state and local elected officials is important for rural hospitals and healthcare providers as they work to advocate for their organizations, their patients, and their communities. But accessing those individuals and developing those relationships is not always easy. So, how do rural hospitals effectively engage state and local leaders? With direct communication, open dialogue, and the courage to reach out. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 84 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So, Rachel, we talk a lot about advocacy, and we're always discussing our role and the role of government and the role of these associations uh, all the time on Rural Health Rising. It's, in fact, uh, the central uh, topic at most of our intervals of conversation, and you know that. Uh, In fact, last week we even discussed advocacy and policy on the federal level because we were in D.C., and so we had boots on the ground, and we're often in Lansing and other places. But today we're focusing on engagement at the state and local level because we know those efforts can be just as important and sometimes even more important to the success of rural hospitals and small communities. That's right. And we are talking with someone today who has experience at both of those levels and has been in our corner many, many times. He has been a cheerleader for Hillsdale Hospital, uh, a referee for Hillsdale Hospital, (laughs) a coach, and he's actually schooled me a couple times uh, as well. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But today is um, a very special day uh, because we uh, this is a first time. Uh, that we have the chance to have in our studio, Mr. Bruce Caswell, who is the former state senator uh, and a former Michigan state representative. Uh, And after he did all of that, not only was he a school superintendent, you know, a coach, a teacher, you name it, uh, an assessor, this guy's done it all, but he also decided at the end of his entire career, having served a very successful stint in the state Senate, to decide to become a county commissioner. Now, I've often asked Bruce, what were you thinking? But it shows that every form of government is local. And he understands that precisely, that decisions that are made at the local level are critical to the operation of the rule of law and to government. So I want to welcome for the first time to Rural Health Rising, Senator, retired, Bruce Caswell. Thank you, JJ. That's very kind of you. Probably more kind than I deserve, but thank you. Not at all, sir. Not at all. (laughs) So, Bruce, uh, as we can tell from what JJ just shared, you certainly have a heart for public service, but why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work in state and local government? Well, I taught math and physics for 25 years, then I was a superintendent for three years, and then I remember telling my wife, Beth, well, if they're going to pay me a retirement check to retire and set to home doing nothing, I might just as well take it. (laughs) And so I retired. During the time that I taught, I was a township supervisor for 20 years. And I also was a property tax assessor for 22 years. And uh, that's not a job that endears you to to people. No, not so much. (laughs) But after I retired... They asked me to come back to school and teach half-time math, which I did for two years. But in the meantime, I had another former state rep, Mike Nye, come to me and tell me that I should run for state representative because our current state representative was running for the Senate. And at first I said no. And as I thought about it, I said to Beth, my wife, I said, well, I said, 
we might just well do it. It'd be fun to do. And I said, nobody's going to vote for me because I'm a property tax assessor. (laughs) And she took that to heart and she said, okay, it, it would be fun. So we went ahead and ran and as I told people Lansing, the darn fools, they went and voted for me. <laughs> and elected Overwhelmingly. Me. So, Overwhelmingly. So that's how I got that job. And then after I served six years, I, I, uh, I wanted to do the Senate job just to see what uh, the Senate was, how it was different. So I campaigned for two years and uh, got that job as well and went back up to Lansing. And then the last term I didn't run and I didn't run because – the primary there were a lot of reasons, but the primary reason was I had grandkids that were getting older. Uh, my wife was going down to see them, and I couldn't go because mm. I always put my job first, and I wanted to spend more time with them. Yeah, and looking back on it, it was the best decision I ever made. So yeah, and but uh, to the chagrin of many in Lansing and locally, because you were an effective uh, legislator. Uh, you were. You were uh, effective in many areas, which we're going to talk about today, but you had a huge span of influence. And I remember meeting with um, the CON folks and Nick Lyon and some other folks. And, uh, you know, it was like, well, what what does Bruce Caswell think of this? And let's call, let's call you know, Senator Bruce Caswell at the time, Representative Bruce Caswell, uh, when I was working with him before he was promoted uh, in the department. Um, but, you know, I, I just, your, your reputation precedes you in a great way. So don't ever lose sight of that. And, and interestingly, uh, you know, you have been dubbed a workhorse. And that's that's the phrase that a lot of people give you. And uh, that speaks volumes to the fact of what you were able to push through. And we're going to talk about some of those things today. So, you know, we've kind of established who you are, what you've done throughout your career, very successful, uh, locally based all your life. I mean, Pittsburgh area, right? Yep. And uh, certainly have a great span of influence and well-regarded. Uh, in fact, politicians who want to get into the business today often knock on Bruce Castle's door, A, before they do it, and mm-hmm. B, you know, seeking the endorsement. He's very selective, which is important in in his endorsements because he does have a strict, pretty strict policy on that. Mm -hmm. Um, But he has a time or two shifted his weight towards some folks and it's uh, paid off uh, because they've listened to him. The very first thing I remember you telling candidates, because they would usually come to me second after you and tell me what you said, is knock on every door. And I think the success of your campaign which translated to how you did business in Lansing was you connected with people. And before we get into the why, I want you to talk a little bit about that because you, you knocked on every door. I'm I'm not joking, correct? I mean, you practically knocked on every door when you were running for office. Yep. Personally, I, I went to the first, the first campaign I went to 9,000 homes. Wow. Uh, when I ran for the Senate over two years, I went to 25,000 homes. You can't, you can't serve people if you don't know the struggles that they have and mm-hmm. their concerns. Mm-hmm. And when you go out and look at somebody eyeball to eyeball at a door uh, and listen, truly listen, you're going to find out what the real struggles oh, yeah. are. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I was really proud of, and I've never said this to anybody before, but when Governor Snyder came into office, he wanted to start taxing the pensions of public employees. Oh. They'd never been taxed in Michigan. And it came to our caucus. And I stood up in caucus and I told him, I said, look, I said, I've just been to 25,000 homes. I said, you can't tax the older people. I said, they, don't, they can't go back to work. They can't get any more money. Their pensions are already decreasing every year. I said, you can't tax them. 
And I said, I'm never going to support something where you tax the older ones. Well, it ended up, what they came up with was a kind of a convoluted thing. If you were born before 1947, I think it was, nothing was going to change. You weren't going to get taxed. Okay. If you were born between 47, 1947 and 1953, right. uh, the first $40,000 of your pension income would be tax-free. Okay. Everything over that, you'd get taxed. And then if you're born after 1953, then you'd be taxed. And that pretty much took care of people who could go back to work or who not, had not yet retired and so okay. on. Okay. And and I voted for that. And there was a lot of my teacher friends that weren't too happy with me when I voted for that. Yeah. But I think we all live in this society and we all have an obligation to help society with whatever issues are there. Mm -hmm. um, just as I could not expect you people to quit paying Social Security. Right. Well, uh, you got you got to live, Bruce. Because I'm <laughs> I'm collecting it by the same <laughs> by the same token. Right. I shouldn't expect to quit paying property taxes right. because I don't have any kids in school. Yeah. Right. We we all have a society that we have to support yeah. in all ways. So yeah. that's kind of that's what's one thing I really remember, and that came strictly because I went door to door and listened to what people were saying and could see how bad they were hurting. And talk to us about how that philosophy early on, you, you weren't a politician. No. You know, you were a township supervisor, but that was pretty much, you just did it and you got, a, you know, the, the election. But um, how did that transfer in terms of the work you did knocking on doors to how you built consensus in both the state house and the Senate? Because you built a lot of relationships. Well, I, th I think I've always been very honest, and I, I've always tried not to be disrespectful to other people. You can't scream and holler at somebody and then turn around a day later and expect them to come back and support you on something. Mm -hmm. But you got to be honest, and you got to lay cards out there and explain to them what you see. And, and a lot of people, politicians are not bad people. A lot of times they just don't understand. Mm -hmm. And I've told people, I said, just because you hired me to go to Lansing— doesn't mean now that I'm a genius. I mm. said, I depend upon you people to tell me things. And yeah. I had a lot of people back here in the community that would come to me with issues and things that I would have never known if they hadn't told me. And I would take them back to Lansing and I would oh, yeah. put them out there. We know you did. You also can't, in politics, if you want to get things done, you can't one-up people. You can't make somebody else look bad in order for you to win the argument that day. Mm -hmm. Okay? You got you got to speak in a respectful tone, and you got to listen. As an example, Alma Wheeler-Smith, who was in the legislature with me, probably one of the most liberal representatives, she was from Ann Arbor, and I was the chair of the Appropriations Committee for the Community Health Agency, and she came up with the idea. She said, how about if we would give an amount of money to the free health clinics each year? She sa I said, well, how much are you talking? She said, 5000 and I thought about it. I said, yeah, that's, that's not a bad idea. They can turn that 5000 into 60000 just because everything's free and they get free mm -hmm. help and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So we put that in. Well, two years later, the Democrats controlled the House. And she wasn't in charge of the committee. But another guy was, but she was on the committee. And she said, we should raise that 5000 to 10000 And she said, what do you think of that, Bruce? And I said, I don't think we should do that. And she said, why not? And I said, well, at that time in Lansing, 
money were really tight. Yeah. We were cutting things like crazy. I said, you make that line item too big and the powers to be above us are going to grab that money and spend it somewhere else and then they'll have nothing. Nothing. Just leave it at 5000 It was a $250,000 line item. They won't, they won't mess with $250,000. they will look other places and that way the free health clinics will be safe. And she looked at me and said, that makes sense. Wow. So- that kind of relationship yeah. you can have if you work yeah, at it. Absolutely. And you did very well with that. We're going to talk a little bit later on the podcast about some of the things that you did for rural hospitals like ours. But before we get into that, I want to do something. We, we start with a why, okay? And we do this on every podcast to get to know our guests just a little bit better. And uh, what I want to know is what is your why? What motivates you as Bruce Caswell? What gets Bruce Caswell out of bed in the morning? Quite frankly, I like to help people. I think people inherently are good. They want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And whatever it is that those needs are, I don't believe in just handing things out to people. I think they should work for things. But all of us at one time or another in our life have needed help along the way. And so that's kind of how I have always looked at the jobs. I mean, I was really strict when I was a teacher, very strict. But... I gave kids my phone number. They could call me at home for their homework. I would be to school every day, an hour before school. They could come in and get help. Mm -hmm. And if a kid's willing to work, I'll bust my hind end to try to help him. Same same thing's true in politics. If people are willing to work and willing to make the effort, um, I'll do whatever I can to try to help them. And you have, and, and we're very appreciative of that. So, you know, let's start with your experience in state government both at the state representative and the Senate side. Um, You know, there's obviously a number of constituents, services, and issues, and organizations vying for your focus as a rep or a senator. Uh, And they want your attention. Everybody's got something that they need, right? I mean, isn't that how it always is? And uh, which I can only imagine has to be extremely tough on a position like yours. Um, so for our listeners, can you talk to us about how you prioritized those requests? Because they're probably coming out of every direction at you. How as how as a, you know, a member of the legislative body, did you handle all those knocks on your doors, Bruce? Well, first of all, I had an absolutely wonderful person help me as a staffer when I first got up there, Dave Marvin. The guy was... Incredible. He was. He's truly incredible. Yeah. And he learned about me and what I wanted to do. And I told him, I said, look, I don't care if I ever get a bill passed up here. But I said, I want to take care of my constituents as best I can. And that's the priority for me. And, And he took it from there in that regard. Uh, later, I hired, when I got in the Senate, Chad Arnold and Alicia Cottrell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they were excellent as well. Spoke to Alicia the other day. Did you? Yeah, she's, she's a character. She, she's a good, hardworking she individual. She sure is. But I think I think basically uh, the way I prioritized things was to do, this is going to sound silly, but to do as much as I could do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... I tried very hard. I always, anybody want to come to my office, I'd listen to them. Yeah. I would sit down and listen. I never told anybody you can't come in, even if, even if they were on the side of an issue that was completely contrary to what I thought. Mm-hmm. Because I thought, well, maybe somebody, maybe they got a piece of the truth. And yeah. It's worth my time to listen mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. So I would do that. And 
I didn't really have to prioritize. I had such good staff, and, and I was up there every morning at 7 o'clock mm-hmm. reading and getting ready for things that I was able to get a lot of things accomplished. And people wouldn't bring me stuff that was not concerned with community mental health or the community health budget or the Department of Human Services budget. They wouldn't even bring that stuff to me. So I didn't have to worry too much about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was pretty much it. Yeah. And, and I guess I've, I've been told I had the reputation that w- if lobbyists would bring people into me, they'd say, don't try to snooker this guy because uh, he's going to ask a lot of questions. Yeah, he <laughs> if, you, if you snooker him, that'll be the end of it. Yeah. And, that, and that's one thing I guess maybe I prioritize. When I'd start asking questions and everything, it'd become obvious pretty quick. Where you were. That somebody mm-hmm. knew, yeah. that somebody didn't know what they were talking about. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I just politely end things. And absolutely. Mm-hmm. That'd, be the, that'd be the end yeah. of it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Were there times where you had people come to you with things that really weren't appropriate to, to engage in or, or manage at a state level where you had to say, <laughs> I hear what you're saying, but really you should be, you know, at talking to your, you know, congressional representative or you should be talking to someone in your local county or city government. Did you have any of those where you just had to send somebody somewhere else? Yes, we did. But when we do that, we'd always try to give them the information, the contact information of the person they needed to get a hold of yeah. mm-hmm. so that, that we just didn't leave them hanging. Right. And um, that nice warm handoff. Right. And sometimes we'd call the agency. We, we had a guy... <laughs> that was living in a house. Now, this would have been in 2008 when the bottom dropped out of the economy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was living in a house that had been repossessed by the federal government. And maybe I shouldn't tell this story, but <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's okay. he said to me, he says, well, we're living here. We're not paying any rent. Yeah. Because he said the federal government doesn't even know they have this house. And he said, we just need water. Hmm. And he said... The municipality won't turn the water on because they said, we're not paying rent. Mm-hmm. So we called the municipality, and the guy told me, he said, I'll pay him up front. And he said, I'll pay him three months ahead of time. Wow. So we called the municipality and explained the situation, and they adjusted their rules, and the guy wow. got his water turned on, and amazing? he got to live there for, I think it was about six months before the feds finally caught up with wow. him. Wow. Isn't that mm-hmm. something? Well, yeah, bureaucracies Bureaucracy. are not known for quickness. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about that, because how what relationship did you play as a state representative, whether it's in the rep or the Senate side, with congressional leaders? Um, is there is there much interaction at all? I mean, can you give our listeners a sense of that, or is it very hands-off? I tried to be hands-off. Yeah. Um, Tim Wahlberg is our congressional yes. representative. Wonderful man. Yes. Absolutely wonderful. You couldn't ask for any better human being. Agree. Uh, but I, you know, he had his stuff to do, and I would send people to him and his staff, mm-hmm. but I I didn't yeah. interfere. It, that wasn't my, my bailiwick. I didn't have any aspirations to move up to a higher level to go to the federal government. I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, at, the, at the state level— I tried really hard to develop good relationships with prominent people in the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. You did, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can do that, I mean, they have a job to do, and it's not a very easy job that they have to do. They, no. You're, same questions you guys are asking me. You want to keep everybody happy. Right. right. Well, they can't. They have to make decisions, and they have to do it based on the laws that have been set. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you keep a good relationship with those folks, then you can you can get some things done that you wouldn't otherwise get done, and they appreciate 
being treated respectfully. We're all humans. We all like to be treated that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. It didn't hurt to do that. And uh, the vast majority of them deserved it uh, because they were good workers. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, with that in mind, so, you know, you were obviously proactively building relationships on that level. And I imagine there were, you know, organizations or um, constituents like a hospital, for example, um, that were actively building a relationship with you. So what are some of the ways that um, that happened and how would your constituents get their issues to be more top of mind for you? Well, The Hospital Association in Michigan did a really nice job, and they were in my office a lot Mm -hmm. explaining issues that had come to them that that were really going to hurt them if things got done the wrong way and uh, educated me. And really, that's the focus of lobbyists, Mm -hmm. to educate. Mm -hmm. And the focus of a legislator should be to listen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't learn if you don't listen to the teacher. Yeah. Right. Now— at the same time, you, you need to listen to all sides. You can't just listen to one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So people that were advocating for and against different positions, you got to hear them all. So th- that was important to me, and I think we developed a pretty good relationship in that regard because they knew they could come to me at any time and talk to me about whatever. Mm-hmm. They knew I wouldn't always agree with them, mm-hmm. but at least they could present their points of view, and that's what that's what they really wanted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that yeah, yeah, and I well, and I imagine too, some of that probably had to do with you know the committees you were on because that obviously yes. affects where your uh, realm of influence is within the the legislature. Um, so, but but yeah, that that makes sense. You um, know, Bruce, I, I guess I want to ask you. We, let's talk a little bit about committees. Were you ever on health policy? I was never on a policy committee. Okay. I was always on appropriations. appropriations that's right, okay. which is okay. really where the strength is. Uh, they but, say, but there were <laughs> health policy issues that. Right. That, that would be brought to me or that I'd speak up on yeah. and explain to folks and caucus yeah. how things worked and everything. So yeah. I, I had some, it wasn't like I was completely yeah. divorced right, from right. it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you talked about was the relationships that you've built with department heads. And I remember early on your introduction of uh, Hillsdale Hospital to one of the department heads when we were going through some issues with our certificate of need. And you remember that because mm-hmm. you were there for us on numerous occasions. In fact, I told this story the other day. Uh, as a result of Bruce Caswell, uh, we have the record number of CON extensions in the history of the Michigan legislature. Because if you remember, <laughs> we went for our skilled nursing facility expansion, then the market crashed. You remember that? Yep. And couldn't afford it. And so in order to keep it alive, though, every six months, you're either going to lose that CON that you worked so hard for, or you've got to allow for it to be obviously renewed and to what they call an extension. And so we received the, the largest number, the highest number of extensions ever. And each time uh, you went to bat for Hillsdale Hospital. And, you know, I, I, let's talk a little bit about the CON process, because um, you also assisted us with MRI. So uh, getting that was difficult because in a competitive state like Michigan with CONs, they're not just handing those out like candy. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of pressure from the big systems not to give CON permission to the smaller hospitals because that would be a very, very for them, that would be a very controlling matter that they could have. In other words, if we get an MRI, they won't get those patients. So we went and um, you, you introduced us to a doctor. I can't remember his name. 
I'm not going to say his last name, but okay. his, his first name was Mike. That's right. That's right. And he was instrumental uh, because you hooked us up with him and said, this is the guy you need to talk with. And uh, that's who we started to converse with for the MRI, if you remember. And then you hooked us up with uh, the CON chair and some other things. And, and it wasn't too, it was, it was all transparent and upfront, but you told us you have to tell your story. I'm not going to do that for you. You're going to do that on your own. And I think that was very successful. So let's talk a little bit about your experience with the CON, because I, I support that process. I believe we should have a CON. I think it helps us because the concern I would have is a system, let's say out of Tennessee, that would want to just put a beautiful hospital right here in Hillsdale uh, and try to basically take all of our patients. And uh, revenue to another state. And revenue back home to support their initiatives back in their home state. It protects Michigan. It protects local economy. But, you know, you I don't think you've ever shared with me your position on CON. And maybe, maybe I don't want to know it, but you were very supportive of us through that process. What's your position on states that are listening to this, that are looking at the CON? Is it a good thing, a bad thing in your mind as a legislator? I, th I think the CON is a very good thing, and I think it needs to be kept. I don't think it needs to be reformed. And I think there are different issues for large hospitals and small hospitals. The thing, it comes back again, the CON just needs to listen. And if they listen, there's always a way to adjust whatever the rules are so that the small hospitals can get what they need at the same time that the big hospitals are getting what they need and not overburden mm -hmm. the system with mm -hmm. too many air, too many places with the right. same services. Right, right. Um, with the MRI machine, we had down here in Hillsdale a trailer coming in. I did. Mm -hmm. And the MRIs weren't exactly of the best quality in that trailer. Correct. You're very true. And I made this statement up in Lansing to a guy once. It was privately. But I said, well, why is it okay for your people to come to your hospital and have an MRI machine that's a really good one and to get great results, but my people are expected to be herded into a cattle car yeah. and be treated in that manner? Right. So as it went along, that was the first time that we went to the CON. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, as it went along, we had a lot of help from Cameron Brown. Cameron Brown was a that's state right. senator. State senator at the time. That's right. I forgot about that. So he and I put together some bills. And we made sure that the bills would affect certain uh, small rural hospitals so that they would, they would drop the threshold of how many MRIs you needed to do a year in order to get a machine. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened, shocking, but it just so happened that the Speaker of the House here in Michigan, his hospital in his local community fell under the threshold of the bills that we put oh, together. Oh, wow. Isn't that something? <laughs> just, How convenient. Just shocking that that happened. <laughs> well, by the time that all happened and everything, the CON could see that we were serious, and they took a serious look at it mm -hmm. and adjusted things, mm -hmm. and we didn't have to pass the bills. So God bless them for that, that they were willing to listen. Sure. But after that... The next few times that I went back to the CON, they were much more willing to listen and much more willing to uh, compromise and, and try to do things yeah. in a way that would be beneficial right. to small hospitals. So they're good people. And it's just a matter that they're, again, they get pulled a lot of yeah. different directions, yeah. as you said. 
Uh, you just need to present the information to them and they'll right. listen. Well, the statewide impact of your legislation was very beneficial to hospitals like Kilsdale. And uh, if we have a listener today on this podcast outside of Michigan, you know, we would encourage you work with your state legislature like Senator Caswell uh, to ensure that you codify in your state, you know, some type of protections for the CON process. I think that's very important. So, Bruce, I want to tell a story because you've you've yelled at me once in my life and that's it. Did you know that? Only once. Now, I, I don't remember yelling at now, you, but now, I probably I mean, did. You were firm. Because uh, I've never heard you yell. Let me rephrase that. You were very firm and direct with me. But if you recall, he actually called me to Lansing. I get a call from Dave Marvin one day that uh, Senator Caswell wants to see me. Uh-oh. Actually, no, it was, a, it was Alicia who called me. And so... Come to the principal's office. Yep. So and it, I knew what it was about. It was about our disproportionate share funding, dish funding. If you recall... Our CFO at the time did not fill out the application correctly, remember? Yep. And I know you remember because you were there. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, don't. I I'm so, just sitting here with bated so breath. So I, I reached story. out to, I was the first one. Duke Anderson came to me, the, the previous CEO, and said, Hey, I need you to call Bruce Caswell. You're close to him, aren't you? I'm like, Well, he's a good friend and I support him. What's going on? Well, you need to talk to him about this. This is bad. This is really bad. And we need his help. I'm like, What? I'll call him. And through a series of conversations, um, one thing neither you or I knew was that the application deadline was missed, right? Mm -hmm. We just thought, we were going off the assumption that we just didn't get it. And so you were tearing through the halls in Lansing. I was tearing through here. We were working with MHA. You remember all that. And then Bruce Caswell found out what I didn't know which was I later found out that the then CFO didn't fill out the paperwork. And you called me to Lansing and you said, Hodshire, and he didn't use my first name. <laughs> you knew Don't you were in you trouble then. Don't you ever put me in a position like that again. And, and absolutely, uh, Senator, I will never do that. I didn't tend to do it then. And he said, but here's what I'm going to do. You know, it was done. Your, your, your hospital should have caught this. Um, but I'm going to work to try. No promises. And he was very firm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's push ahead the calendar a little bit, and it was fully restored. That didn't come easy. Uh, Senator Caswell at the time had to have a lot of conversations with a lot of people. So I want to talk about disproportionate share a little bit uh, and how important that is. Obviously, you were instrumental in securing that for Hillsdale Hospital to have you know access to that. Um, but you, beyond that, you began to champion DISH funding because you would call me before every legislature and, and the budget was enacted. You'd say, all right, how's that working for you? What's going on? You fill out your application, right? Yes, Senator, <laughs> we are. Um, but you really became a champion of DISH. Wh- why did you have a passion for that? Well, like a lot of things that I ran into in Lansing, what I found out was that DISH funding was being given or used with the large hospitals. But that was it. And my question was always, well, if it's good enough for the large hospitals or the large cities, why isn't it good enough for the small hospitals or the small cities? Mm -hmm. Mm. And I had a really good relationship with uh, a gentleman up there by the name of Paul Reinhardt. Oh, yeah. Paul was a bureaucrat, and the man was an absolute genius when it came to figuring out how to get extra money out of the feds. Yeah. 
And so we would, this dish funding, you would hold up money and you'd say, well, this is local money that, that we've used. The state would give you the money and you'd hold it up and say, this is local money that we've used uh, to do X, Y, and Z. And then the feds would match it and that money would come back. The state would keep a portion of it and the rest of it would flow back to the hospital. Yeah. Or we did this with nursing homes. We did it with a lot of different things. It, it was a Medicaid payments are abysmally low. Oh, my God. Abysmally low. Tell me, low. tell me. So you got to figure out creative ways to get more money to nursing homes, hospitals, et cetera, so that they can at least stay open, keep the doors right. open and help people right. and right. provide quality Absolutely. care. Absolutely. So that's why I took such an interest in it. It was a way to get additional dollars to people. And I did it for this hospital, but I also did it for nursing homes and so on. Across the state. I mean, because you became a champion for it. Across the state. Right. I, I, I didn't ever do anything just no, you didn't. for one district. No, you didn't. No. And it really was beneficial and it got more money into people's pockets to help them provide the services that needed to be provided because Medicaid in and of itself, you can't survive on. No, you can't. Mm-hmm. No way. And we find that to be the case. And, and I've shared with you before, and you, of course, were very close to us, but, you know, 70% of our payer mix is the federal and state government, Medicaid and Medicare. Medicaid doesn't cover your cost. Medicare covers a little bit of your cost, right? right. And so we're serving a high percentage of Medicaid patients in Hillsdale. Yep. We're very poor. And so you took that, you know, and ran with it because most of your rural hospitals, as you know, they can't survive on Medicaid. And without this funding, we would have closed. There's no, I'm not being dramatic here without this, this continued funding. And remember, you know how DISH works. It's always two year lag. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. this would have impacted us for four years, four years, which means without a doubt, the millions of dollars Mm -hmm. uh, that we would have lost from this would have certainly closed the doors of this hospital. So on behalf of Hillsdale Hospital, but in in rural healthcare across Michigan, that was because of you. So we say thank you. Well, you're welcome. I don't know that it was all me. I I did my part to try to do as best I can, but it's very important that rural communities in the UP, Northern Michigan, down here where we're at, have a hospital available to people. I agree. Very Mm -hmm. important. I agree. When you were, you know, looking into the DISH funding and doing more work on that, um, you mentioned that it was being used for larger hospitals and in urban areas, but not in the rural or smaller communities. Was it written, was the, you know, policy or the regulations written such that the smaller hospitals weren't eligible? Or was it something that smaller hospitals just were not accessing, but technically could have been applying for if, if I remember right, Rachel, and it's been some, some time, if I remember right, it's the way that the proposal was written up and presented to the federal government. I see. And by changing the way the state asked for DISH funding right. to do it in a different way, yeah. it then would make rural hospitals eligible. Yeah. Okay. And again, that comes back to... People just don't understand that there's a difference and that things to me need to be written in such a way that both entities can can access mm-hmm. these dollars and be able to uh, be able to use them. Mm-hmm. And once you explain it and you get it across to them and everything, they're more than happy to, to try to help. Right, right. Well, and I think that perspective that you clearly took with you to Lansing has, um, you know, a lot of um, similarities to, you know, uh, the big one of the big focuses in healthcare, especially today, is health equity. And some of the things you just talked about shows the importance of health equity between 
urban, suburban, and rural patients, that there should be health equity across those um, categories. And a lot of times we don't think of the you know, type of community someone lives in as part of the health equity conversation. Sometimes we have to bring that into the health equity conversation because people often think about other types of demographics. Um, And clearly you were championing that uh, before that term might have even been, you know, a buzzword within the healthcare industry. Well, you know, I want to say this. When I went to Lansing, I was dumber than a box of rocks. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean this. Qualify that statement, though. Well, but my second term up there... I was asked, I didn't want it, I didn't go for it, but I was asked to be the chairman of the Department of Community Health. Yeah. And I'm telling you, there were a lot of people in Lansing that helped me tremendously to understand the intricacies of Medicaid mm-hmm. and all of the ins and outs of it and so on and so forth. And I ask a lot of questions, but I had a lot of people help me. And that's that relationship you build with people and you treat people with respect. You, you mentioned Nick Lyons. Nick Lyons is an absolute saint. And it's a shame. I agree. It's I agree. a shame what he's gone through I agree with in this you. state. 100%. But he, he helped me so much in explaining things and Paul Reinhardt in explaining things. And... Uh, I think it was the lady's name. I think it was Mary Mary Beth. I think there was a another lady that worked closely with Nick, and she, she was just a saint. So I can't sit here and say I did all these things. There were so many people. The, the hospital association would come in and talk to me and explain issues to me. And but they're the, great. The they're, doctors, they're, great. they're wonderful. Yeah. And all you have to do is listen and then try to help as best you can. And that that's what I tried to do. And we've had some successes. But it wasn't just me. It was a lot of people. But you got to work with all those people mm-hmm. and put every put everything together. You do. Right. Yes. Right. So you spend how many years at the State House between the two chambers? Ten years. Ten years at the State House. Uh, then you come back, and at some point, you uh, become a county commissioner <laughs> uh, to serve on that local level. So let's talk about that a little bit. When you were a county commissioner, what work or authority at that point was within your scope that could impact the hospital? Well, the, probably the biggest thing that I got involved with, uh, I was they put me in charge of the budget after a couple of years, but the biggest thing I got involved with was the whole situation of the ambulance mm. uh, situation that we have here in the county. And uh, I'd like to say that I tried to solve the situation was, and was successful, but I, I was not successful. Uh, nothing, nothing really changed. No. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's too bad. You're right. The, the, the ambulance services, you know, we talked earlier about Medicaid not paying too much. The ambulance services are underpaid. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no question. When mm-hmm. I was in the, the house, we did manage, I did manage to get through, I think it was back in 2005 or six, a 25 cent increase in the mileage rate that ambulances would get mm. uh, when they pick up a Medicaid patient. Yeah. But they, they're, they're way underpaid. Um, and the situa- and so, so as a result, there's not a lot of ambulances running around. Now they have the issue with trying to get people Staffing. to help. Right. They don't right. have a lot. So right. they have their pressures and everything. But what I tried to do is to get done so that people would get transferred out of this hospital to uh, more intensive care hospitals, trauma hospitals, and so on, if needed, and get it done in a more timely manner. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't able to accomplish that. 
mm-hmm. you spent a lot of time working on it. Yes. And I want to thank you for that because you put some provisions in place uh, that didn't make too too many folks happy, but you you created accountability. I want you to know that by mandating, you know, quarterly reports and some other things, which really created some transparency. And, you know, where's the, where are these millage dollars going? Because that was your argument from the beginning. Like, if we're going to fund it and we're going to go to the people, then you're going to be accountable. And um, so, so I appreciate the hard work that you put forth on that, Bruce, as well. Don't forget the critical nature of your role in mental health. You brought that with you from the Senate side when you were obviously over lifeways of sort, mental health. But in Hillsdale County, it's lifeways. Yep. And you spent a tremendous amount of your time as a county commissioner working on some of those issues that impact our ER, patients who were brought in, weren't getting assessed timely, or if they were, you know, no placement for these folks. Um, I think that's been a passion of yours, hasn't it? Well, y- yeah, I I feel really bad for people with mental illness because I'm, I'm reminded of Winston Churchill's statement, Americans always do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> 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 and and the mental health issue is is a classic example. We used to take mm-hmm. back in the fifties and the sixties. Uh, we used to take anyone with a mental illness or a mental impairment, and we put them all in state hospitals. Yeah, it's true. Well, the government—they never said this, but it's what it amounted to. The government, federal government, uh, could see down the road that they weren't going to be able to afford this anymore. So they d- passed laws in Washington that said we got to close up all the state hospitals. And they promised that money would follow the person, okay? Well, over a period of 20 years, all the state hospitals across the country closed. So we went from putting everybody into state hospitals to putting nobody nobody into state hospitals. Well, the people who have mental illness and the people who are mentally impaired are just like anyone else. They're all at different levels. Some of them can function and have functioned extremely well uh, out in society in general, yeah. and they've been able to make a go of it. You've got about 5 to 10% of them who have serious mental illness and recurring, and it's an ongoing thing. And it's, it's no different than diabetes. You never are cured of diabetes. You've got to manage it. Some days you have bad days. Some days you good have point. good days. Well, yeah. that's mental illness. But we've taken away any ability to... Take these folks when they're having really bad, a really bad time in their life and put them into a secure facility where they can be taken care of and they can get monitored and get their medications back in line again and so on. And people don't realize a lot of the medications these folks take have very nasty side effects. Mm-hmm. And so quite a few of them will go off their medications mm-hmm. because they're sick of fighting the, med- the side effects. Oh, sure. And then that just causes the mental illness to flare up again. So mm-hmm. it's a very complicated issue, and it has not been handled well by the federal government. Now, I will say this. Debbie Stabenow has done a good job in terms of putting together community-centered uh, behavioral health clinics. Right. And what I heard in 2005 was the folks who have mental illness quite often also have a drug abuse problem. Sure. And they need to go one place to get all their care. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, here we are 17 years later, and we're finally getting to the point where we're building these facilities so that people can go to one place and get all mm-hmm. their care. Mm-hmm. But we have people who come into 
emergency rooms because we don't have the beds in the state. Beds. No, and, right. and they'll spend and they'll spend five, six, seven days yeah. in an emergency mm-hmm. room. Yeah. Kid, yeah. Kids, right? The same thing. No, you're right. Well, that's not where they belong. No, and the beds right. need to be built. They need to be staffed, and they need to be taken care of. Yep. And mm-hmm. we need to treat these folks no differently than we treat people with diabetes or cancer. That's an ongoing issue. Uh, we would never dream of putting a diabetes patient in the ED room. For, for two weeks and just let them go? Yeah. Right. We'd never dream of doing that. Well, we shouldn't do it with the mentally ill yeah. either. We, we sometimes treat those things as if they're somehow more acute um, without, you know, having the same level of prioritization right. um, for folks in that behavioral health space. Well, so, you, Bruce, you may remember, Rachel, years ago, Betty, uh, we never used to talk about breast, ca- breast cancer. Yeah. And Betty Ford had mm-hmm. breast cancer. And she came right out and talked about it, said this is the way it is and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. And it took that whole stigma away that, right. that you can't talk about it. Well, yeah. we need to do the same thing with mental illness. We need right. to talk yeah. about it and we need to understand that it's controllable, that people can can have a mental illness, but they can also function and they can contribute to society and they can have a good life. Right. And we need to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. And it's unconscionable to stick somebody in an emergency yeah. room for two weeks. Right. right. Because there's no beds for them to get them the help that they need. That's right. And that's what we need to do. Was there ever talk in Lansing about uh, creating additional, uh, you know, the old state institutions? Or or was it just eliminated because of a cost structure? I, th- I think, my opinion, yeah. it was eliminated because of the cost structure. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so we we have this podcast and uh, we could talk to you for hours. It's already been an hour, uh, <laughs> but we could talk for more hours. Um, but we have this podcast really designed toward empowering rural hospitals across the country. OK, so the purpose of having you on the program today is you've shared, you know, some some personal stories about Hillsdale and work you've done in the state. But what what advice, you know, would you give the rural executive hospital whose uh, you know team is listening and him and his team are listening or her team are listening to this today? Um, what advice would you give them about their efforts in building a relationship and how to engage with their state or state senator or state representative, um, you know, what should they do? What What's the first thing they should do? Is it, and I'm not being tongue-in-cheek here, but is it the person who gives money to your campaign? I mean, we have to talk about that. Or is it truly who gets your ear? Um, and how do you duplicate that like Hillsdale was able to do with you across this country so that the rural hospital's voice will be heard? Because, mm-hmm. Bruce, it's not being heard right now. 140 hospitals since 2010 have closed in America, and the numbers are going to skyrocket over the next two years, as predicted. Hundreds more. And we're already seeing that. The quarter, last quarter, posted most Michigan hospitals, many Michigan hospitals, posted significant financial losses. Some in the millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. One hospital that operates here in Michigan, but a, a, a system that's big, uh, $241 million in the last quarter loss. And we're hearing stories like this across the, the country. We're suffering, right? Our Medicaid population, we, we suffer. We suffer because inflation, the cost of doing business now, you were at our annual meeting. You know that we had a few good years where we controlled the margin, but Inflation has caused all my prices to go up, but the government payers don't give me more money, right? So so there's struggles. 
And a lot of the ways that hospitals like mine can make it are through earmarks, legislative action that safeguards certain programs like disproportionate share. But for the for the CEO or the C-suite executive across the country listening to this that really wants to know from an experienced veteran legislator, how do we capture their attention? First of all, <clears throat> you got to sit down and you got to create a list of maybe five, six items of things that you really need to have happen to make your hospital successful and to be financially viable. Secondly, you need to always tell the truth, Mm -hmm. the whole truth. Don't come to a legislator and tell him just the part that you want him to know. You've Mm -hmm. got to tell him the goods and the bads because if he's going to go back up and advocate for you and all of a sudden he finds out back up in Lansing or the state capitol that there's this other side that you never told him about, you're dead meat. Yeah, you are. Mm -hmm. He's never going to listen to you again. You have to be completely honest and tell him all the aspects of the problem, both goods and bads, things that help you and don't help you. And then finally, contact him on a regular basis. Now, some legislators don't like that. They don't like to be bothered that much. So you got to know your legislator. Yeah, that's true. The more... The more that people contacted me, the more I appreciated it because it could keep me up on issues, and I wanted that. But you got to know your legislator and how he reacts to those types of things. So be honest. Know specifically what you want to ask for. Uh, Like I say, create a list of four or five things and pick off the one that's the most important and go to them and give him all the help you can. Tell him all the goods and bads so he's aware of everything and ask him to go back up and see what he can do. That's right. Well, Bruce, that's uh, obviously uh, what I've always appreciated about you is the issue of transparency and honesty. And that that's what you've always said to us is just just be honest. It may not the truth is going to be ugly and it may hurt, but you got to you got to tell the truth. And um, I think the perspective you've always asked for me is, all right, what are the what's the other side going to say? You know, give me, I need to be prepared for that. Yep. What are the cons to this? Yeah, you're telling me all the pros for your hospital, but what am I going to face from the big systems, you know, in Detroit, whose state rep and senator are coming after me? So uh, great advice. Uh, again, it's been an hour. We could spend hours talking about it. But I want to say before we close that um, uh, single-handedly some of the work that you did, uh, and there's been, you know, a few other legislators in Michigan who's who have had a, a big hand in the success of this hospital. But uh, I want to say no bigger hand than Bruce Caswell, because the extensions we receive to have our skilled nursing facility in many months when we have suffered financially, when the governor shut us down for uh, for, for our surgeries and some other things. It was the skilled nursing facility that has carried us through some of those months of having mm-hmm. that that available. If we didn't have the skilled nursing facility, I don't know where this hospital would be. Um, working with us for our mental health uh, services uh, and extensions for getting that CON to build a, a mental health institute uh, here at the hospital. Also for your work and advocacy for making sure we could get state-of-the-art equipment. And you did that through every time we wanted to go out and buy a new uh, MRI, you just can't go buy it. You have to have a CON for the approval to place that, replace that MRI. And you were always there fighting for us. So um, the biggest piece, obviously, as I shared earlier, was a disproportionate share. All these programs in total and the services and the work you've done uh, was allowing Hillsdale Hospital position themselves to be where we are today. Uh, and that is we are in much better shape than most rural hospitals across America. But we're the same threat exists for us. And so thank you for getting us here to this point. 
Uh, it's been a great journey with you, and I know that you have been retired now for a little while um, and enjoying your family. Kevin, your son, tells me all about going and seeing the, you know, your grandkids, uh, his niece and nephew. Uh, he loves it. You just took a trip with Kevin not too long ago, right? Did you guys go to Canada? Canada. Yeah. I, I heard all about Canada. it. Yeah. And we went to Banff, Canada, and Kevin got the COVID and gave it to the rest of us. Oh, oh did no. he really? <laughs> No way. I said, God bless you, Kevin. He's always giving it. Oh, <laughs> bless well, we'd, his heart. We'd had all our shots, so it wasn't very serious. Yeah. And we got yeah. on Plaxivid sure. right away. So, right. but yeah. Well, well, I on said, behalf, thanks, Kev. Yeah. On yeah. behalf of Hillsdale Hospital, we sincerely say thank you. On behalf of Rural Health in Michigan, I'm on the Michigan Hospital Association board. We say thank you. Your contributions have meant so much to rural hospitals to sustain us and to keep us and to get us to this point. Now, the road is going to be rough. You know, there are times where I wish I could pick up the phone and call my good friend Bruce Caswell, who had some decision-making authority up in Lansing. But the reality of it is, is that you've given us instruction of how to build those relationships. So on behalf of Hillsdale Hospital, rural health across Michigan and truly around the country, thank you for your service. Well, thank you, JJ. That was very kind of you. And I have to tell you, it was an extremely humbling part of my life to be able to help people back in Hillsdale and Branch County, Mm -hmm. the hospital, but all kinds of other people. Oh, yeah. Um, I've lived here all my life. I think the world of Hillsdale County and and now Branch County, and I do anything for them. So thank you. I tried to do my best. Yes, I'm sure I made a few enemies along the way, but I tried <laughs> to do my best. Well, you did you did great for us. So thanks, Bruce. We thank appreciate you. It. Now, before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. All right. What we want to know is what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that's unique to rural life? And it can't be cow tipping and it can't be any of that <laughs> stuff. But but you've lived rural all your life, right? Primarily, you've lived in the rural community. And, and has Pittsburgh been your home forever? I grew up in North Adams. Oh, so. Eight miles from Pittsburgh. Eight, eight miles. Yeah. So, so you've lived rural all of your life. Yes. So what would you characterize as one of your most rural experiences? Hmm. It's a tough one, I know. Well, I can think of a couple things, but I'm not sure I should say them publicly. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just censor them. Um, I don't know. I I think probably the thing I liked the best when I was a kid in North Adams was I uh, would go through Verlin Lynch's fields back up to Indian Hill and we'd slide, we'd slide up an Indian hill. And we didn't have any adults around or anything else, and we'd slide down the hill, and there was always a, a barbed wire fence at the bottom. Oh. It would just uh. rip our clothes to shreds. But uh. we thought it was neat to try to get under the fence and, <laughs> oh my gosh. and into the stream. <laughs> that is unique to rural life. That is. And probably the, to a barbed wire fence. Probably the other one was when the oil, oil wells started getting drilled over around North Adams. We used to think it was great to get our BB guns and go out and have BB gun fights and shoot at each other. And we'd get in the oil well ditches and come home, come home just black as black could be. Thinking you were in a war, right? Yeah, yeah. thinking we were you in a know, war. There oh fight for, dugouts, fighting fight for, for the country in America. And we'd come home and our mothers weren't impressed at all. Probably not. Probably not. The good old days, right? The good old days. Well, once again, thanks for joining us today, Bruce. All right. Take care. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. 
I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Bruce Caswell, former Michigan State Senator, former Michigan State Representative, and former Hillsdale County Commissioner. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.